Hello everyone. Welcome to Arts Neeti. I'm Shekhar Tomar. We are extremely glad to have Professor Arvind Panagariya with us today. Currently, he's a professor of economics at Columbia University. He's Padma Bhushan awardee, the first vice chairman of Neeti Aayog, former chief economist at the Asian Development Bank and an author of more than 15 books. We are very happy to have you here, Professor Arvind Panagariya. Welcome to Arts Neeti. Glad to be with you, Shekhar. Thanks for having me. So your research is mainly about international trade, trade policy, and growth issues. So I'll go back a little bit in time because you have been one of the proponents of free trade since the earliest of times, at least in India, I would say. And so I'll quote from one of the pieces you wrote in 2000 at the beginning of the millennia, and I'll quote: uh, "My millennial wish for India is to achieve double-digit growth in the forthcoming decade." on the surface the desirability of double digit growth as opposed to its feasibility seems obvious yet the case for it is not uncontested in india where concerns related to poverty reign supreme and many continue to see a conflict between growth and poverty reduction even the desirability and i put emphasis here even the desirability of high growth rate is under constant attack why do you think there is such conflict between poverty alleviation and growth and the second follow up question is since you wrote it first time in 2000 have things changed in india now so first your second question yes i think lot of progress has happened if i go even a little bit further back from 2000 to 1990s for instance uh, you know growth was still seen as a kind of bad word and not many people wanted to upfront kind of advocate growth because you know in the indian ethos which has a very long history of uh, socialism behind it has always kind of seen this conflict somehow that you know if you are centered on growth it's going to only enrich the those who are already rich and would do nothing for the poor so view of many has been that well if we are going to reduce poverty we got to do redistribution but uh, you have to have something to redistribute <laughs> and, and you know this is the problem uh, even our leaders back in as far back as 1930s had recognized so th- there was a national committee on planning which the congress party had appointed in 1938 actually washington bose was the president at the time of the congress and he appointed and he then asked pandit nehru to chair that committee and so that you know Nehru writes in the Discovery of India in great detail about their discussions in 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 this uh, committee, and uh, he says that look, you know, we always knew that our objective was to combat poverty, but we simply couldn't do that without raising the incomes because uh, this uh, uh, the incomes were so low that trying to do redistribution would be simply amount to reduce redistributing poverty. We needed to grow, and so he. fully understood rightly so and at that time you know quite amazingly growth was seen as quite in positive light and uh, he wrote without hesitation about it and a uh, lot of the debates that subsequently hap- happened after independence and all uh, issues of and so he you know nehru was always talking about growth what happened of course was now here we come to kind of begin to see why growth kind of uh, became as kind of a, what i call the bad word this this begins to kind of unfold here that uh, the the model we adopted which was centered on uh, the development of heavy industry first turned out to be almost anti growth and it also turned out 
that you know the emphasis on heavy industry effectively left out excluded from the growth process the bulk of the indian population right because you know at the time your savings are were about 7% of the gdp gdp itself was very small so total pie to you know the savings that were available were really small and if you then put them into three or four steel mills more or less you have used up your savings into just uh, uh, those steel mills and they would employ a few workers but the bulk of the workforce is left out now east asian countries got their mark so right. i'll ask uh, i'll go to east asian countries later but at least in the indian context and since you have looked at the history is it the ex post analysis or ex ante they also knew that it can lead to some problem like like this no i think ex ante there was no recognition maybe you know a few here and there but but certainly very few voices you get there almost no voices which are questioning particularly in the 50s and and, and when the second five year plan which is the critical five year plan is formulated there is consensus around that heavy industries india has got to do this is a strange thing because you know if you look at all the others even those countries that did import substitution they never went for heavy industries we were unique in this respect to follow the soviet model and go straight into heavy industries first and you know nehru talks about uh, we got to make machines that make machines so that was uh, unique to us and it was not foreseen that you know this is actually re- resulting in the exclusion of the bulk of the population they just thought that you know we need to give space to the cottage industries village industries small industries so therefore you know what we would do is uh, not let any factory production take place in all these commodities that can be produced in the household sector the the the, the cottage industry sector right so so this thought that this will be good but in the end of course you know no skill creation happened there uh, with no capital whatsoever you know productivity remained extremely low and the east asian process was different there because you know when you go to the export market when you kind of uh, uh, allow larger scale uh, enterprises to flourish in these labor intensive sectors and all skills get created and, and it's broad based meaning that it it draws in larger and larger part of the workforce and and that workforce begins to get better and better skills and over time you know unskilled turn into semi skilled semi skilled turn into higher skilled uh, and so forth but that kind of process skill formation in india didn't happen likewise on the education front the fallout was that steel mills or generally these machine making industries they all required engineers they all required managers so therefore you went in and opened Uh, higher education institutions engineering colleges management colleges so compared to all the other countries in asia we were far ahead on that front but that also meant now you know remember again small amount of savings that sort of translated in therefore the neglect of primary education so we had iits but we don't have broad based education so 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 you know literacy moves very slowly in india uh, the the primary education middle secondary school education largely kind of gets neglected so but coming back to the philosophical question which we started with so growth was a bad word so when did the needle actually shift ah so you see so so now this is where we come to explain why why this happened so growth kind of was supposed to deliver poverty reduction but for reasons that i have tried to explain that you know there was a, in the process of production there was a lot of exclusion ultimately so the incomes really didn't rise at the bottom and uh, 
there was also need to generate this surplus from these factories that were being built and invest more. But that investment again went into heavier industry, right? The capital intensive kind of industries. So therefore, the poverty really did not go down. And so therefore, in a way, you could argue that uh, the, the critics with the socialism baggage in the background had a point that, look, you know, growth was supposed to have reduced poverty, but it hasn't. It's a legitimate criticism in this sense. But the, but, the, but the inference was ultimately was the wrong one because their inference was that therefore growth is bad. But it was growth was not bad, it's just the particular form of growth that we chose. And we probably didn't have significantly high growth either. No, no, but, but this is exactly the point that also precisely growth for inclusion and inclusion for growth. So, so growth for inclusion is how Nehru thought, right? But there is also inclusion for growth. And here we excluded this very large part of your workforce. And if you exclude, you know, if you don't make effective use of the large workforce you got, your growth rate remains low. So we ended up with a low growth, 4%, as compared to the other countries, which, you know, uh, by early 60s or late 50s began to move to these uh, export-oriented, labor-intensive industries. Inclusion happened automatically, actually, through the process of growth. Very good example of South Korea, you know, that you look at 1960, almost 65% of the workforce is in agriculture. By 1990, only 18% of the workforce is left in agriculture. Industry and services grow rapidly, bring them into gainful employment. And this, mind you, so many workers are being absorbed into industry and services in South Korea during these 30 years. And yet, the real wages are rising at 9 to 10% because the productivity is rising rapidly. So they're absorbing. And so inclusion is happening automatically as a part of the growth process. But, but that inclusion is also leading to higher growths of 8, 9, 10%. Taiwan's a similar story, Singapore, you know, a similar story. So that is where we lost out. And now we can, if you wish, you know, can come to when things begin to change and how so they begin to change. Things do start to change beginning 1990s when we have these big set of reforms. And you have done like extensive work, research, looking at this question that how India changed after the 1991 reform. So we see, at least in the data, that India grew at a sustained level after these big set of reforms. At the same time, we also saw that there was poverty elevation across all set of social groups. While the first question, which is on the growth acceleration in India, that has received enough attention. But I think it's the second part which still has not received enough attention that how did 1991 reforms led to reduction in poverty? So maybe you can talk about your research on this topic and tell us about like how much poverty did we manage to reduce through these reforms? Okay, so good, uh, wide-ranging questions. So yeah, so historically we can continue and uh, so some bit of you know recognition began to happen. You see, because when you see these countries for two decades by, by you know, when you come to about 1980, I mean East Asian countries have almost for two decades have grown so much rapidly and per capita incomes are rising and also questions did begin to be asked and all, but still there was no, you know, appetite for any radical change. I mean, the, the, the philosophy of socialism and, uh, uh, and, and, and government intervention and government being the agent of change, etc., that still ruled. But nevertheless, you know, on the margins, on the margin, they began to make some changes. Some bit of liberalization began to happen in the late 70s, 
continue through 1980s, we do see some kind of kick up in the growth rate, maybe about one percentage point in the 1980s. And then, of course, as you know, 1991, uh, we had that balance of payments crisis. And, and that, of course, happened because uh, 1980s, very large fiscal deficits were run when a very substantial part of these deficits was financed by borrowing abroad because it, even the government found it cheaper to buy, borrow abroad rather than at home. But that, of course, began to put pressure on our balance of payments because uh, by 1990, almost 35% of the export earnings were being taken by this debt service. So it was a very high debt service ratio by then. So while growth picked up and growth as growth was picking up, of course, it was also increasing the demand for imports. You know, ultimately you need raw materials, you need immediate inputs, capital goods, etc. And we were liberalizing, you know, through open general licensing system. And so this set of, you know, large fiscal deficits, borrowing abroad, not sufficient trade liberalization to generate enough export revenues. Ultimately, and then of course the trigger was the U.S. invasion of Iraq at the time, which led to the oil price hike, and and we practically kind of were left without foreign exchange. So that's where '91 happens, and around that period, around just around that time, elections were happening. Rajiv Gandhi is assassinated. Uh, Congress wins, and lo and behold, you got the, you know new prime minister Narasimha Rao, and he turns out to be a very different kind of Congress leader, and and so he was willing to open up and the systematic opening. So now, of course, 91 is watershed because, you know, reforms become systematic. Uh, it's no longer by stealth uh, and uh, uh, investment licensing goes away, import licensing goes away, except on the consumer goods imports. That took another decade. 2001, finally, consumer goods uh, were also delicensed the imports of consumer goods. So anyway, this happened. Growth began to kick up, and we see, you know, ultimately the decade of 2000s uh, was was very high growth decade for us, and that's where now we begin to see the impact on poverty big time. Obviously, our measurement of poverty depends on what is your poverty line, but uh, we for a while we had for quite a while we had an official poverty line, and uh, planning commission used to set that, and. Um, you know, uh, from something, poverty was cut in at least half, you know, so from 40% of the population uh, overall that was poor. This is approximate, but by 2012, it has uh, fallen to something close to 21-22%. So massive decline in poverty, and my, I've done many of these numbers myself also, others have done as well, Planning Commission also does that. But you can look at the scheduled caste, you can look at scheduled tribes, you can look at uh, Hindus, Muslims, Jains, Sikhs, you know, because uh, in the sample surveys we do, you can identify uh, the, the castes and religion at least at some level. So, so I, you look at every single group as a group, poverty rate actually declines. Now also during this period, we should point out that, you know, as a result of growth, government revenues began to rise. So the government could also begin to put in place social safety nets in a more systematic way. So one of the big ones, early big ones was the Narega, the National Rural Employment Guarantee Act scheme. So GDP goes up and you raise more taxes and so redistribution also happens. Yeah. And, and our growth process was also beginning to become at least somewhat more inclusive. It's still, I wouldn't say we have become fully inclusive, but still, you know, compared to what it was, and because now it all freed up 
right? You know, the, there was no licensing, there was no, gradually we also did away with small scale industries reservation. We also connected to the global marketplace. So we be, began to become more, we became more competitive. So all that helped. And so inclusion also happened through gainful employment, uh, uh, at least com in comparative terms. And that also directly helped uh, poverty, uh, reduction in poverty. But uh, uh, at the same time, as you said, you know, the fact that the government had more revenues now at, uh, as the GDP began to increase, they could also do some social spending uh, on, on a larger scale. So we have seen that, yeah, these reforms helped, but you're not perfectly happy with it. Based on your writings, and uh, you have mentioned that these reform-led reduction in poverty has not been as dramatic in India as seen in other places. And so again, I'll quote from uh, one of your writings. We believe that at the heart of the slow pace of poverty alleviation in India has been the slow transformation of the primarily agrarian economy into a modern industrial one. So what explains this weak performance of India that you have in your mind? What explains that and why is it this transition from agriculture to manufacturing so important? I think that's the heart of the matter for me uh, as far as the full economic transformation is concerned. Now, what happened was, you know, there's a lot of history that got built up. Initially, as I mentioned, heavy industry. And that emphasis somehow continued uh, for quite a long time. And we really, you know, separated that there is small-scale industries, which were all labor-intensive sectors, apparel, footwear, furniture, all the, you know, kitchenware, uh, anything that's labor-intensive, light manufacturers mostly. They were all put on small-scale industries reservation, right? So these were, therefore, have to be manufactured by very small firms. So that history got built up. And then all the big business houses, successful entrepreneurs are sitting elsewhere. This is where all the capital-intensive industries are. Or gradually, in the 1980s, you begin to also get into these skilled labor-intensive industries, mainly the IT industry, right? So either it's skilled labor-intensive or capital-intensive. Now, for a country whose really productive resources, in fact, are predominantly labor, right? And, and capital is one of the scarce factors. You, if you go into these very highly capital-intensive industries, this exclusion of the workforce continues. And, and unfortunately, so good things did happen in the 1990s, 2000s. We grew far more rapidly than we ever had in the past. But the two differences were, were number one, our growth rate never kind of quite uh, sustained at the level of 9-10%, which is what the countries of East Asia had been able to do, including China later on. Uh, from 1980 to 2010, you know, China had grown steadily about 10% or so per year. So we never kind of really grew at that kind of pace because this exclusion from the growth process still remained to some degree. So, so first, the growth rate itself was not, not high enough. But also then, because the, the inclusion was, much, was, was not of the same scale as the, these other countries had seen, that became another reason for slower prosperity for the poor. So prosperity did come, but it was slower than in the other countries, and which is where, you know, the quote that you're uh, uh, reading out uh, uh, is coming from. That, uh, uh, so today, for example, uh, and now post-pandemic uh, for 2021, if we look at our labor force survey, uh, the PLFS, Periodic Labor Force Survey, 46% of our workforce is still in agriculture. So this is one part of the problem. 
that and 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 mind you that uh, you know half of these farmers are really sitting farming on a very tiny farm so the figure is this is from 2015 agricultural census which is the latest we have so far 48% of india's farm holdings are less than half hectare yeah and and the average size if I, if i take the average of these you know so not every one of these is half hectares some some holdings are 0.1 hectare some 0.2 hectare so i take the average uh, it comes out to less than a quarter hectare 0.23 is the is is the precise figure no nobody can you know make a decent living for a family of five on such a small farm so that's part uh, 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 of the problem in in agriculture now we come to industry and services now because still this history has continued and also we are slow to reform right you know small scale industries reservation really did not go away till quite recently all of it but 2005 you can say most of it was gone but still 2005 is pretty late right 91 we started the reforms this is almost 14 15 years later and then labor law reforms prime minister modi has kind of passed the legislations but still they have not been implemented so we still uh, the, uh, the the laws uh, particularly this most important law which is now called the industrial code a code for industrial relations that has not been implemented yet so that still you know continues to handicap the labor intensive industry the outcome the, what is the result of all this the result of all this is that another 42 43% of the workforce is in enterprises that are employing less than 20 workers so it's very small enterprises low productivity so you know much of the workforce whether you look at farming or you look at industry and services is sitting in very low average labor productivity activities so if you have to compare it to the countries that you have studied so extensively what would be the key difference and then how long would it take even if we do these broad set of reforms to achieve those sustainable level of growth rates and maybe have more developed labor intensive sectors at least for a few decades yes i think you know this is what we need so the first step has to be you know the implementation of the laws that have already been passed by the parliament uh, so that will help then you know there are some key input uh, markets where we have very serious problems so you know capital markets are, are still not too bad although you know that bias of our entrepreneurs also so this is because entrepreneurs have also gotten hardwired if you go to the cii for example or you go to fiki these are our you know industry chambers talk to the entrepreneurs there everybody wants to do something you know uh, information technology you know the the automobiles you know these heavy fancy manufacturing nobody wants to build wants to you know stitch clothes nobody wants to you know <laughs> manufacture shoes but but i'll ask you even on these high tech industries and i mean you have talked about this infant industry protection and so like even some of these high tech industries do you think we are like very competitive in the world or we need to improve our game even in these uh, some so called high tech industries like automobiles well automobiles we are not competitive i mean the, the, because there is largely grown uh, behind a very high protection wall uh, you, you got these tariffs which are 100 125% and the result has been that uh, our auto industry has never become competitive so it's really you know poor consumer who gets exploited here 
for uh, all these years you know consumer is paying uh, uh, one and a half to two times the price uh, of automobile same automobile elsewhere in the world economy uh, and yet even the even the quality of the car is, is not uh, quite at the same level so uh, those industries clearly one one needs to make them more competitive uh, now two wheelers have done on, by contrast much better they are very competitive and they are you know some of the largest uh, enterprises in two wheeler industry actually are exporting in a big way so so it varies by industry uh, but largely if you look at our exports right you know what where are we cost competitive these are petroleum refining highly highly capital intensive you know enormous amount of capital hardly any workers employed yeah so my imagination of a petrol uh, refinery is that you have a machinery and then you have basically few security guards because everything else is automated pretty much right so 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 that's our leading export actually you know yeah. then you got the sectors like pharmaceuticals you got machinery sector and so on so so it's still our leading exports are not labor intensive products but how about services there that is so even right. on services now if we look at our exports right information technology these are skilled labor so you know ultimately when you look at the entire information technology industry in india probably employs maybe 3 million and the most 4 million people which is decent good they are good jobs so certainly no complaints about that part but but it cannot turn into a big employer and it can certainly not become the employer of the farmers who are you know who have to be given the gainful employment uh, in, in in the mainstream of the economy so so you need somehow the success of the labor intensive industry and the timing is couldn't be better i mean this is fantastic timing because uh, wages have gone up in china uh, already you know the multinationals want to diversify they want to get out and find alternative places now they've gone to bangladesh and vietnam etc but at the end of the day those are all small countries not enough labor and eventually the wages will rise there and uh, high wages will become the constraint so india is really the only country with bangladesh has been growing pretty fast but i'll follow up on some of the policy prescription so i know you have been working on this issue for a very long time on trade reforms and uh, general reforms uh, in india uh but if you look at the trade now like most of it is in global value chains and so it's not just about opening up the market but it's also about getting into these bilateral or multilateral agreements with different countries so how do you think is india prepared for that are we doing enough to be part of these gvcs so it's a good question you know um it does tie up in the trade policy of course uh, so unfortunately at least you know the tariffs themselves have been going up so that part of the policy is going in the wrong direction at the same time i think finally we are at least beginning to negotiate free trade agreements we have done uh, with australia we've done with the uae which are both positive steps but of course these are still relatively smaller entities one with uk is is under negotiation but what we need really truly is an agreement with the european union we got to really get into freer trade with a large entity and the only feasible one there that i see is the european union uh, there's a large market tons of uh, uh, sources of benefits uh, for them we are also a 3 trillion dollar economy today in another few years we will be maybe 5 trillion so we are a large economy they will benefit from opening to us and we will benefit uh, from opening to them so i think if we do that at least 
that will begin to get us into these value chains. Right? Because, you know, they, there's no specialization by the entire product. I mean, my favorite example often is the iPhone. It also, the products have become more complex these days. So iPhone has something like 1600 different components. And these are manufactured by 200 different firms, which are located around in 43 different countries. So you can see that uh, specialization now is not like anybody produces iPhones. No, they're producing some components of iPhones. And some country like China probably is assembling the final, it gets on all 1600 components there and then assembles, assembles it. So specialization now is, you know, is in, in components or in some particular activity uh, associated with the product. Uh, somebody is designing, somebody is innovating new models, uh, etc. So that is how it is. And this is why the value chains are so important. So you really need these agreements. And you so therefore really need these agreements because you see, as I give you the iPhone example, you know, 43 different countries, you know, these firms are spread around. If too many tariffs are there, then, you know, when, as you cross multiple borders, on each border you are getting, collecting these tariffs and, and uh, sometimes there is tariff on tariff, right? Because you already paid tariff, but then it crosses the border again. You have to pay tariff on, on the full value inclusive of the tariff that you previously paid. So cost then begins to add up. So this is why you need, you know, at least where, wherever the value chains are in those markets, you need, you know, relatively low tariff or no tariff so that the goods can move uh, and the cost doesn't get added up on top uh, for, uh, for the uh, final product to ultimately remain competitive. But would we be able to do it? So I'm again going back to this. You said it's really important to integrate with the European markets, but we had the chance to integrate ourselves with RCEP, which is the East Asian market, and you were a proponent in favor of uh, joining the RCEP. In the end, India did not join it. Uh, don't you think the same set of players who oppose joining the RCEP would again be blocking similar kind of deal with the European Union? And I, I guess it's the same set of people in the government right now who blocked this deal would make similar arguments for RCEP. So no, it's, it's not just the government. Uh, it, it's also the industries. And, and to the extent that the industries that get impacted when you open to China as a part of RCEP versus the industries to which you open when you're working with European Union could be different. So, so but that's, that's one small point, which is one of difference. But now RCEP, of course, at the time we decided not to sign. I was very much for it. And I was disappointed at the time that we didn't sign it. But after that, we had the incidents happening in Galwan Valley in Ladakh. Uh, I think after that, I changed my mind also. So I sort of sadly came to the conclusion that ultimately it is the Communist Party that rules in China. And uh, I don't think we can really trust them because in the end, when if push comes to shove, economics will always be on the uh, backs in the back seat. Uh, it's the political interest of the party. It's not the, the political interest of, the, of China, but it's the political interest of the Communist Party that is ultimately going to decide. But that's a different is. argument. It's to geopolitical. It's, it's geopolitical it's and it's not economics. Yes. And, and at the time we chose not to sign, actually there was no Galwan. And so, you know, I want to be clear about it that this is why I was favorable to that agreement at the time. Today I'm with the government. I think for tutorously it turned out that we stayed out. And, but I think and you still need to do a very strong effort to convince them, even for the deal with the so, European Union. Yeah. So now, now, now there is a 
bit of difference, I think, and I, I see that ultimately the players do change in the government, you see. We, we may not see, but uh, there's a new Secretary of Commerce, not so new now, you know, because this is the one who, who has uh, led the charge and, uh, and clearly with the blessings of the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister wants to do it as well. So, you know, we have actually, you know, successfully negotiated with Australia and the United Arab Emirates. So there is some proof of, of the change in, in the attitude, change in the leadership uh, and, and all. Now, there is also politics, remember, at work here, which is favorable. Why? Because after what has happened with respect to China, there is a strong desire in the nation as well as in the government to move our trade a bit away from China. Well, how do you move your trade away from China? There are only two ways. Either you begin to restrict imports of the products that are coming in large quantities from China, which means you raise tariff barriers against China or against the products that come from China. Well, that is not a very wise thing to do. That will be very, very disruptive and will be to our disadvantage. It will hurt us uh, certainly as much or perhaps more than it would hurt China. So I don't want to do that. Nobody would want to do that. Nobody should want to do that. Only other way we can move our trade away from China is by expanding our trade with other trading partners. How do I do that? The only way to do it is to liberalize trade with these other trading partners. So here the geopolitics now begins to help a bit the negotiation of FTAs with the other countries. I think you are absolutely right in questioning that, you know, industry interests will still, you know, for example, European Union is going to want us to open the auto sector. They are competitive in automobile exports and they would want to compete on equal terms. So will our auto industry have the stomach to let the European automobiles be imported at eventually at zero duties, but at least initially also some reduction in duty? So these are the questions which will still be there, which will have to be sorted out. But I think there is enough benefit for us. I mean, ultimately, in these agreements, you have to give some to get some. And, and I think it's enough for us to get out of these agreements that we should give whatever it will take to give. And then I think, you know, that that is where I feel political economy is somewhat helpful. I know that there are some of these positive changes, but you think, uh, and this is like a more broader question about uh, deglobalization after the pandemic. So first we had the US-China trade war, uh, then we had the pandemic, and now the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. And there has been a general sense of uh, looking inwards, uh, trying to do some reshoring. Some kind of uh, deglobalization is happening when probably India wants to hitch itself to the globalization to grow again. Uh, do you think that these are like valuable concerns? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is also being a bit overplayed. Economists kind of publish uh, uh, this, this issue where the cover page says how to re-globalize. Now, you know, come on, if you look at seriously, you know, the, the, the deglobalization really has not really happened, if you ask me. You could argue that the pace of globalization has slowed down. Uh, that as a proportion of the world GDP, world trade has not grown or certainly not grown perceptibly. But, but you know, the world GDP is growing and it's, if as a proportion it has not grown, it is trade is also growing at least at the same pace as the No, world but we GDP. also know that there are some like sticky factors. Even if you want to move away from China, uh, and which a lot of uh, advanced economies are also trying to do, it would take few years. You cannot move 
You know, that's simply nature of the things because even the barriers as we begin to remove, it'll there'll be a calendar that you know over a ten year period you'll go from the current levels of tariffs to zero. So they'll it'll take time. This is all phased in. But but I was addressing the earlier question on on globalization, right? I mean deglobalization. I mean, is there a threat that those markets with which we are trying to open up actually are the ones that are closing anyway? And so is there that kind of threat? So if you look at that, I think, you know, ultimately, if you check what the what has been happening to, let's say, total value global exports, you know, in spite of the pandemic, uh, uh, all the big trade war that happened between US and China, after all, remember that, you know, after all, the US and China are two largest trading countries, two of the largest trading companies. And with this kind of trade war, you would have thought that trade volumes will collapse, right? But in spite of pandemic, added to the, uh, the, the, the this kind of trade war between these two large uh, countries, if you look at the total volume of exports, today it is the highest ever. So 2021, uh, the, the merchandise uh, trade is, is something of the order of 19 or 20 trillion or something. Together, basically services, I, I'm not quite clear, uh, sure exact figures what what how they break up between merchandise trade. But you know, some 20, 21 trillion is merchandise and the rest is services. Total $28.5 trillion in 2021. It is larger than the pre-pandemic exports by at least two to three trillion dollars. So, you know, so the all these has... things have not, you know, dented <laughs> the growth in trade. The determined exporters find a way to export their products. You know, the, 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 the profitability is a huge incentive and they, uh, entrepreneurs, uh, don't give up easily. So as my last question, I, I want to talk about something else, uh, which came some uh, 10 years ago. So you're the first vice chairman of Niti Aayog. I want to understand what was the genesis behind replacing planning commission coming up with this uh, new body. And if you can tell us like some of your anecdotes from your time when you served at the Niti Aayog. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know if I can really think of any anecdotes there, but uh, as far as the, the, the replacement of the planning commission by something else is concerned, of course, you know, there are a lot of us who had been writing that, look, that you know, we have now embraced the market-oriented policies. Uh, the model is not different. We are no longer into the planning mode. What is the point of doing these five-year plans, right? And particularly of the kind of five kinds of five-year plans that we had been writing. So, so there was clearly this recognition. I can speculate now, you know, on this because, you know, when I came to Niti Aayog, it was already there. So I have no idea what was the motivation with, with the Prime Minister. But I can only speculate that it is, this is not secret that, you know, as the state chief minister, Prime Minister, or so the then chief minister Modi was never happy with the planning commission. And, and so, in a way, he, he felt that the Planning Commission was not serving the interests of the states very well. So that's clearly was, was there in the background. Uh, and he probably also recognized at some level that, you know, now the uh, new era has begun, uh, but it, we have been just too slow. Even actually, you know, when, when uh, Prime Minister Manmohan Singh was ending his second term, he gave a speech actually at the Planning Commission and he, he raised some questions that, you know, uh, is, uh, is it not the case that maybe we are still using uh, instruments uh, uh, that uh, were relevant to a, a different era? 
so one needs to think about it. So even he had raised the questions about it. So, so I think you know, as you know, on the on August 15, 2014, uh, when Prime Minister gave his first address to the nation on the Independence Day from the Red Fort, he announced uh, that he is closing the Planning Commission. And I remember I was in New York at the time still, and I was wa I was watching that speech live, and uh, I was like, oh wow, he's really done it. <laughs> But what's the role, like, uh, did you really set the stage for what the Niti Aayog is going to do in the following years? Or was that already set in stone by the time you joined as the first vice chairman? I think the institution was, was basic design, etc. had been put into the executive order which created the Niti Aayog. But a lot of the shaping of it had to be done in the first three, uh, you know, whatever time that I spent there, a little less than three years. By which I mean, like, we cut the staff quite considerably. The planning commission staff was too large and I felt that, you know, an efficient institution actually needs to be smaller, lean and uh, mean, if you will. And, and then we also had to reconfigure all the divisions or verticals as they came to be called because, again, the priorities were different. And uh, then also we tried to bring out some changes to how the staff will be hired. So I was very keen that we bring in outside uh, talent so we put in the provisions that one third of the uh, senior staff should be, we should be open to hiring laterally from outside. So that finally happened after, uh, although it, I mean, the actual hiring happened after I left, but the ball had been put into motion well before I left. Uh, so so that, that reorganization happened. Prime Minister's own thinking, of course, plays a very critical role in how the institution shapes up. There is no question. He is the chairman of the institution. And uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, you know, he really works on very, very wide canvas. I mean, you know, when he came actually to Delhi, by the time he had done a lot of thinking of what he wanted to do. Because my very first meeting with him, the substantive one, the first courtesy call was half an hour. But then when, when a formal official meeting happened where, you know, the finance minister Arun Jaitley was also there, and uh, the prime minister and we and some senior officials of a few, but it was a very small group. At that uh, meeting, uh, I still have the notes and all. You know, the the uh, I, I was astounded how many areas he covered. You know, it was largely uh, me sitting, taking notes, listening to him. You know, what he wanted to do. Uh, now, some of the things that he discussed in that meeting uh, are still being kind of pushed out. So maybe I'll ask like another personal question and you may choose not to answer, but you would you be willing to like come back again as uh, as someone in the government again or have you you haven't thought about it? I, I really, that's not a question I, I've, <laughs> I, I, I ponder. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I didn't ponder over that in the first time either because I had no ambition. People thought that, oh, you know, he's doing this to, to, to want to be, to have some position or so. And that was not, never my motivation, actually, you know. My motivation is simply that in, I just want India to progress. And whatever is in India's interest is what I write. And so, you know, a lot of things that the present government does are all in India's interest. So I support those. There are one or two things where I disagree that, uh, you know, the policy... The trade issues. <laughs> trade issues. <laughs> uh, where, at least in my thinking, that's uh, that's not in India's interest. So, I write critically on that. So, so ultimately, it, it, it is uh, India that we all work for. Uh, and and um, so, that's what motivated me. And when such a dynamic prime minister uh, calls you to come and work with him, you can't say no. So, I went. went. So... That, that was a great experience, you know, there's no question. 
very pleased I, I, I did that and it was truly, you know, life-changing kind of experience. Thank you so much for your Great. time. It was a pleasure speaking to you. Likewise, Shekhar.